Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 5, Paul writes, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we preach That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says whoever believes on him will not be put to shame for there is no distinction Between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul has been teaching us about Israel's rich spiritual history. In chapter 9... We looked at the past. In chapter 10, where we are, we look at Israel's present circumstance. And in chapter 11, we will look at Israel's spiritual future. In chapter 9, Paul draws special attention to the issue of God's sovereignty. And in chapter 10, the focus is on God's justice. Some people suggest that God's sovereignty may somehow diminish man's choice or human responsibility. Paul affirms God's right to choose and predestine. But Paul also places the responsibility for man's lost and sinful condition squarely where it belongs with the human individual. Human beings cannot hide behind God's awesome sovereignty to excuse or explain man's depravity and sinful state. Paul affirms that if people are lost, they are lost because of their willful rejection of Christ. Because of their rejection of grace. Because of their rejection of the gospel. The central thought of Romans chapter 10 can be summed up in a single sentence. That single sentence is, God has rejected Israel because her people have rejected his Messiah, Jesus Christ. In fact, that's the only reason God ever rejects anyone. And that's one of the key concepts. Remember also the central theme of the chapter. It's that word righteousness. And remember what the word righteousness means. It means the ability to be accepted. 
before God. The Jews wanted a righteousness or an acceptance, but they were unwilling to obtain righteousness by faith. The Bible speaks of two kinds of righteousness, works righteousness, which involves obeying the law, and faith righteousness, which involves accepting the free gift of salvation for all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the beginning of this chapter... Paul outlined the reasons for the Jewish rejection in verses 1 through 13. He'll later address the remedy for that rejection in verses 14 through 17. He'll conclude the chapter with the results of that rejection in verses 18 through 21. But right now, Paul is going to describe the principle of faith in verses 5 through 11. And then the promise of salvation in verses 12 and 13. I want to draw your attention again to the source of God's righteousness in verse 5. Read it for yourself. It says, for Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. Quote, the man who does those things shall live by them, unquote. Paul is going to contrast the language of works righteousness and faith righteousness. Moses, in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, Paul, for his sermon, is quoting from Leviticus chapter 18. He writes that the person who achieves the righteousness that the law demands shall live by that. The Old Testament text reads this way, You, therefore, or you, shall therefore keep my statutes... And my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. The whole text says, I am the Lord. When Paul does this, he's quoting the source of God's standard of righteousness. It's not the law. It is himself. The Lord God is the standard of righteousness whereby he accepts or rejects. The source of God's standard is himself. And the standards, if you read Leviticus chapter 18, the context is that the children of Israel have come out of Egypt and they're headed for Canaan. And they have a choice. And their choice is, are they going to adopt the lifestyle, the beliefs, the behavior of the place where they just came from, are they going to adopt the life, the beliefs, the behavior of the people of the land into which they're going, or are they going to adopt and embrace the lifestyle and the standards of the God who has redeemed them from their slavery. And so this is the key. The emphasis is on achieving, obtaining, doing. No one disputes that there's a standard, that there's a measure which the law requires. The problem, of course, that, that, that Paul is pointing out and that Moses points out in Leviticus is that sinful human beings don't keep the law perfectly or perpetually. Let me help you with an illustration that, that I've used over and over again. Imagine you're driving. And you run the stop sign. 
and the police officer pulls you over and says, do you know why I'm pulling you over? And you say something like what I say. You suspect that I'm here illegally. No, no, no. Do you know why I pulled you over? No, I have no idea. Well, you just ran the stop sign or you ran the red light. Can you imagine if you said to the police officer, but I've stopped at every single one before. I mean, there's been hundreds, maybe even thousands of times that I've stopped at the stop sign. Doesn't that count for anything? Is he going to reward you for all of the times he stopped or is he going to give you a ticket for the one time that you ran the stop sign? What's the answer? Does all of the times you kept the law and stopped at the stop sign, does that play into his equation of whether or not he's going to give you a ticket? I want you to think this through. The children of Israel, before the giving of the law, were they sinners? Did the giving of the law and even the obedience to the law forgive and make all of the sin that they committed prior to the giving of the law go away? No. The law was given to people who were already sinners. Who were already condemned. And even if they could keep the law perfectly and perpetually from that day forward there was this sentence of death hanging over their heads for the previous sin and that God reveals that he requires payment for sin Paul has made a convincing argument of what the law cannot do the law cannot produce life in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 6 where Paul writes who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant not of the letter but of the spirit for the letter kills but the spirit gives life The law can't give life. The law can't make us righteous before God. He's already written that in Romans 3.20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And the law cannot take away our sin. In Hebrews chapter 4, if you read verses 1 through 4, you'll discover that the law cannot cancel God's promise to Abraham. Remember, the law is given some 400 years after the time of Abraham. The law won't last forever, it says in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. And so again, the the person who's been under the law and, and committed to the law and observing the law asks the question, well, what exactly does the law do? What is the purpose of the law? Paul argues that it relates primarily to Israel in Romans 2.14. It removes our ignorance of sin, Romans 3.20 and Romans 7.7. 7. It reflects the character of God in Romans chapter 7, verse 12. It regulates society and exists in part for the unbeliever in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, where, where Paul writes to Timothy, knowing this, that the law, the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly, for the sinner, for the unholy, for the profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for man's slayers and for whoremongers, for those that defile themselves with mankind, for men stealers, that means human trafficking, for liars, for perjured people, that's for people who tell lies under oath. 
And if there's any other thing that is contrary to the sound teaching, unquote. So the law reveals our carnality in Romans 7.14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. The law reinforces our need for a savior. And justification by faith alone. And so Paul is going to continue with his argument. In verse 6 he says, But the righteousness of faith... So now you know the contrast. The righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down from above. Here is what he's doing. He's quoting the language of faith, but now Paul turns to another portion of his Bible. He, he in effect, is telling the Romans, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 and 13. And Paul says, and, and quotes the text. Now what's interesting is if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 and 13... The text isn't about faith. And the text isn't about the gospel. The context is the law and specifically what it means to turn from your sin and turn to the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. In Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 10, God is saying in this particular passage of scripture that The law isn't hidden. The law isn't distant. The law isn't inaccessible. As a matter of fact, if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30, that's Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, I'm going to read the text. I should have marked it. In verses 12 and 13, this is what it says. Gather the people together, men and women. Wait, that's 31. Chapter 30, verses 12 and 13. And I'm going to begin at verse 11. For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far away. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. A human being doesn't have to go to heaven in order to obey the law. God brought the law from heaven to Moses. You don't have to cross the ocean because it's nearby. The point that Moses is making and the point that Paul is adopting when God gave the law to the children of Israel, it wasn't far away. It was close by. So everyone 
could hear it. It was just waiting, waiting, waiting to be obeyed. So Paul takes these words and reapplies them to the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. Remember what it says in the gospel of John. That the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by our Lord Jesus Christ. The language of faith and the language of the gospel doesn't require you to go to heaven. Or go to the place of the dead. The language of faith and the language of the gospel means that you don't have to go to heaven and drag Jesus off of his throne and bring him back to the earth. For one thing, that would be impossible because you can't make Jesus leave his throne. And the second thing, it's unnecessary because Jesus has already came down from heaven in his his incarnation. And so part of the point that Paul is making is this, not that you have to drag Jesus down from heaven and give the gospel all over again because the gospel has already been given. Jesus has died on the cross. He's risen from the dead. So when you look at verse 7 where it says, who shall descend into the abyss, that is, bring Christ back from the dead. The word translated abyss is what's called a transliteration. It's the Greek word abusos. And in the Greek world and in the ancient world of the first century, the abusos was the place of the dead. It wasn't necessarily the place of the righteous dead or the unrighteous dead. It was a collective term that meant the place of the dead or the place of the spirits elsewhere in Luke chapter 8, verse 31. It's described as the place where the demons are. And it's seven times in the book of Revelation, it it, it speaks of the dwelling place of demons. In the book of Luke, it's translated the deep. In the book of Revelation, it's sometimes translated the bottomless pit or simply that place which has no Bottom, And so, again, when Paul is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 13, he changes it from who will go across the sea to here, who will descend into the grave, the place of the dead, or the place of the departed spirits, to bring Christ up from the dead. Again, that would be impossible and unnecessary since Jesus has already risen from the dead. So what exactly is Paul doing? Paul is presenting The two doctrines which are most difficult for the observant Jew to accept. It's also the two doctrines which people in our own culture and our own society find the most difficult to believe and to trust. That is the incarnation of Jesus, that God becomes a human being, one person with two natures, completely God, completely man, and that this person literally dies a sacrificial death on the cross and rises from the dead. These are the two things that the observant Jew found most difficult to believe. And to trust. So does the gospel ask men to do that which is humanly impossible? Go to heaven and have a conversation with Jesus. 
or go to the place of the depart the departed dead to bring Christ up from the dead. Again, that would be impossible. So does the gospel ask people to do that which is impossible or that which has already been done by Jesus Christ? And the answer is no. So what Paul is doing is he applies this to the gospel and to righteousness by faith. He is in effect saying it's not far away. It's very, very close. What, it, in fact, is he saying? In verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is, the word of faith, which we preach. The word translated is rhema. It has the definite article. But what does it say? The word is near you. He calls it the word of faith. What is this word of faith? The word of faith is the person of Jesus himself and the message of Jesus. This is the faith that rejects and refuses human effort. Human skill, human righteousness. Remember verse 6? Say not in your heart. Or don't put it this way. This is the kind of faith that is personal. This is the kind of faith that believes the personal message that God has given in the person of Jesus. So again, Paul is adapting the verse from Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 14 to say... It's the gospel that's near. It's grace that's near. It's salvation by faith through grace that's near. It's accessible. It's intelligible. It's obtainable. You can have it. This is a gospel that's available to everyone. This is salvation that's offered to everyone. Paul makes it clear that salvation isn't Hidden. It isn't secret. It isn't exclusive. Everyone can be saved. Why is this important? Because there's some who came to the conclusion that only a special group could be saved. Only a select group was chosen for salvation. Imagine if you believed that only a select group, only a chosen group, that you had to be born into a particular family, or you had to have a certain genetic signature, whether it was Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. The gospel, when he says that this select group chosen for salvation or another group rejected for no reason, Paul argues that people are responsible for the choice to accept God's gift of love and mercy and salvation and that the gospel can be expressed in normal, familiar, everyday speech. The word is near you. It can be understood with your mouth. It's in your mouth. It can be understood in your heart. It's inside of you. It can be easily, readily understood. Faith does not cause the incarnation. In other words, Paul isn't inviting you to believe a myth. 
He isn't inviting you to believe some sort of crazy story about a Jew who dies on a cross and rises from the dead. And if you'll just believe this crazy, crazy story, Paul isn't presenting it as a crazy story. He's presenting it as a historical fact. The incarnation has taken place. The resurrection is a historical event. It requires our response in verse 9. And that response is an inward conviction that results in an outward expression of confidence and trust. And that's what he means in verse 9 when he says... That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. This is the gospel in a nutshell, in miniature. And again, when it says if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus... It implies that you understand what I've just previously said about his incarnation and about his resurrection. It isn't some sort of magical thing where you go, okay, I'm just magically going to say, I believe in you, Lord Jesus. What do you believe? I believe that you're an ascended master, much like all other ascended masters. Who has spoken into the circumstances of our life? No, that isn't what Paul is inviting you to believe. How can this offer be received? How can it be accepted? Paul makes it crystal clear when he says, Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead. You will be saved. I want you to understand that salvation requires Consent and confession. What do I mean by consent? It has to be voluntary. It has to be personal. If you put a gun to someone's head and said, believe in Jesus, or I'll pull the trigger, and they go, sure, whatever you say, is that consent? That is not consent. So if a person threatened with death or threatened with torture or even mentally or emotionally manipulated. Paul is in effect saying our consent is given to God and our confession is made to one another. The responsibility for salvation rests on each and every individual. No one can do it for you. Your parents can drag you to church. They can drag you into the Sunday school. They can shake you. They can have bad dreams about you going to hell. They can scare you. They can manipulate you. They can do everything imaginable that they can think of. But in the end, each and every person has to come By faith and confidence and trust. You accept the truth that Jesus came in his incarnation. Born of a virgin. Born a real human being. And there's a reason why Paul calls Jesus Lord. He understands that Jesus is Jehovah. 
that he is the God of heaven. And second, you have to believe the truth about his death and his resurrection. God raised Jesus from the dead as proof that the Lord has completed the work necessary for salvation. And that God is completely satisfied with Jesus and what he has done. And when you believe with your heart... You're believing with the sum and the substance of all your mental and emotional and volitional powers. John Kettle, the poet, wrote, The deaf may hear the Savior's voice, the fettered tongue that's chained. Its chains may break, but the deaf heart, the dumb by choice, The laggard soul that will not wake. The guilt that scorns to be forgiven. These baffled Ian, the spells of heaven. It was his poetic way of saying, hey, look. But the person who remains silent in their heart, the person who refuses to speak by their own choice, the person whose lazy soul won't wake up, The guilt that scorns to be forgiven. The person who says, I don't have a problem. I don't need a savior. There's nothing wrong with me. I don't need God and I don't need Jesus and I don't need the Bible and I don't need Christianity. What's surprising is twofold. The first surprise That God would do such a thing that he would save us. And then an even greater surprise. How could anyone reject this kind of salvation? How could a person knowingly, willfully harden their heart and refuse to embrace an offer of love and an offer of grace and an offer of hope? And so Paul in verse 10 says, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. Think about what he's saying in that single sentence. For with the heart, that means inside of you. By faith one believes unto righteousness. In what sense? Remember righteousness being accepted by God. Forgiven by God. Embraced by God, redeemed by God, reconciled by God. You mean apart from being a good person or being the best person you could possibly be? Yeah. You mean on the basis of what Jesus has done? Yes. You see, there is no such thing as a saving faith that doesn't include accepting and acknowledging Jesus. The Bible gives no encouragement for those who accept Jesus with mental reservations. Well, I'll accept him, but the whole thing about him being born of a virgin, not too sure about that. Because virgins don't give birth to babies. Jesus, yes... Living a perfect life, I have reservations about that because nobody's perfect. Jesus rising from the dead, you know, I have reservations about that because in real life people don't come back to life. So tell me about the Jesus that you do believe in. You know, 
a good guy, maybe even the best guy. And that he lives on in our minds and in our hearts. But that's not the kind of trust and belief that Paul is talking about. We believe that faith is the sole condition of justification. Salvation, remember, comes through a cross. A crucified Christ. So what are the essential elements of saving faith? Theologians used to use three Latin words to sum up Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10. They used the three words noticia and ascensus and fiducia. Those three words can be very simply translated. Noticia is a biblical knowledge. Noticia had to do with an understanding of the truth. And a census was mental, cognitive, assent, absent manipulation, absent coercion. It was a mental assent that agreed with the historical details and the truth about the gospel. And then fiducia. It's come into our own language. If you ever have a realtor who tries to negotiate the price of a contract or a lawyer, they're called a fiduciary. This is a person who's been given an extended trust, your trust, your physical and financial circumstances lie in their hands. It's a kind of trust that meant that you had confidence that they were going to act in your best interest. And so here, it's trust in a person. It's a heartfelt trust. It's a trust in the Lord Jesus. And examples abound of many of a person who understands the Bible. They may even understand about Jesus. But they've never had a life-saving Life-changing, amazing encounter with Jesus himself. History is replete with examples. John Wesley talks about coming from England and he's going to preach the gospel to the Native Americans. And he preaches the, to the, the gospel to the Native Americans. But he says something quite compelling. He says, but who's going to preach the gospel to me? He understood the facts about the Bible and he he understood the circumstances, but he himself had never come to a place where he put his confidence and trust in Jesus himself. And then one day he did. And his ministry changed. Thomas Brooks writes, Everything that a man leans upon but God will be a dart or an arrow. That will certainly pierce his heart through and through. He who leans only upon Christ lives the highest, choicest, safest, sweetest life. Spurgeon wrote, trust Jesus and you're saved. Trust self and you're lost. And so he ends with the scope of the righteousness. Look what it says. Paul writes, for the scripture says, whoever, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
What does he mean by that? Again, Paul takes yet another Old Testament scripture as the basis of his assertion. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, where he's talking to a group of people who are about to be taken captive and who are about to be taken into Babylon, but God promises that they will one day return and so that by faith, They're going to have to trust that the promise that God makes is true and that you can trust by faith that God keeps his promises. Because Paul knew, Paul knew, Paul knew that the thought of public confession would generate sweaty palms, a pounding heart, fear, For some public identification with Christ might arouse suspicion or ridicule or a change in friendship or a change in relationship. What if my husband finds out? What if my wife finds out? What if my children find out? What if the people at work find out? Jesus spoke of this in Mark's gospel in chapter 8 verse 38. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me. And my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Paul knew that public confession on earth would result in public confession in heaven. Paul knew that a person's unwillingness to confess in the here and the now would probably mean that they wouldn't really confess him in his heart and and in the very real life in which they live. Paul admitted already in chapter 1 of verse 16 of the book of Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because this is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek also. Paul uses the term, for the scripture says, whoever believes, whoever. Jew, yes. Gentile, yes. Man, yes. Woman, yes. Terrorist, agnostic, atheist, wicked, pure, who's excluded? And this becomes one of the key concepts because you see whoever is way too broad for the observant Jew who says, whoever can't mean the Gentiles. Jews, yes. Gentiles, no. But it has an immediate application for each and every one of us. Whoever? You mean people who aren't like me? Yeah. People from a different culture? People with a different language? Yes. Whoever? Whoever is a broad enough term. 
term to encompass each and every person. The offer is available to all as a free gift. The offer and the invitation brings with it the opportunity to accept or decline. Whoever accepts the offer believes on him will not be put to shame. In what sense? In the sense of what the New Testament reveals and what the promise of God reveals and what the vision that unfolds reveals because whatever hardship, whatever pain, whatever limitation, whatever criticism, what, what, whatever kind of rejection that you're experiencing here on the earth will be so different when Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, when every knee bows and every tongue confesses in the book of Isaiah where he's quoting this particular passage. It speaks of a time when the children of Israel are given the due for being who God has always wanted them to be. So what is the relationship between Jew and Gentile? No distinction for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. And remember there were Obvious distinctions in the first century. Jews spoke Hebrew or Aramaic. Greeks spoke the Greek language, although most sophisticated Jews had a complete understanding and access to the Greek language. So what were some of the distinctions? The way you talk, the way you dress, the way you conduct yourself, the rituals and cultural traditions that you embrace. But Paul says no distinction, no distinction, no difference in what sense that all of the riches, all of the benefits come from the Lord. That God is rich toward all who call upon him. Call upon him for what? For forgiveness, for redemption, for reconciliation. For salvation. This is why Paul can with assurance say. For whoever. Calls on the name of the Lord. Shall be saved. What does that mean? It means when you call on the name of the Lord. You're not just simply. Calling out the name Jesus. But all that that name implies. All that that name brings with it. Paul offers Joel chapter 2 verse 32 as the biblical evidence that anyone, anyone can call upon the name of the Lord and embrace forgiveness and light and redemption and reconciliation and forgiveness and salvation. Because the name of the Lord stands for everything that the Lord is and all that that name incorporates. Salvation is available to anyone, whosoever. We're accepted when we call on the name, not rejected. It's absolute in its promise. It doesn't say might be saved, could possibly be saved. There's a snowball's chance in Gehenna that they could be saved. It says that they will be saved. It's an absolute promise. And so Paul began the chapter with a plea and a prayer. My heart's desire to God is that Israel would be saved. Remember we were given a reason and a right to pray for the people that we love. That we can and should pray for our family. And then Paul challenged the non-Christian. 
that we're each responsible before God to accept the free gift of salvation. And then Paul fills our hearts with hope as we discover it's the Lord, it's the Lord, it's the Lord alone who is responsible to save everyone and anyone who will come to Christ. Lewis Sperry Chafer wrote, quote, Anyone can devise a plan by which good people can go to heaven. But only God can devise a plan whereby sinners who are his enemies can go to heaven. Lloyd-Jones put it this way, Christians are not men and women who are hoping for salvation. Christians are men and women who've experienced salvation. It's not something that we look forward to. It's something that we have in the here and the now. And this is why one of the last sentences in the Bible has John speaking the words of God in Revelation 22:17 and the spirit and the bride say come let him who hears come let him who thirsts come and whosoever desires let him take of the water of life freely Luis Palau says Only in Jesus Christ do we have the assurance of salvation, forgiveness of sin, entrance into God's family, the guarantee of heaven when we die. In the 1950s, Ralph Carmichael wrote this great hymn. He wrote, The Savior is waiting to enter your heart. Why don't you let him come in? There's nothing in this world to keep you apart. What is your answer to him? If you'll take one step toward the Savior, my friend, you'll find his arms open wide. Receive him, and all your darkness will end. And within your heart, he'll abide. And the chorus goes like this. Time... After time, he's waited before, and now he's waiting again to see if you're willing to open the door. Oh, how he wants to come in. But the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He'll never kick your door in. He'll never crash your gate. But gently, firmly, he'll extend the invitation. Just like I'm extending the invitation to you. If you can answer these simple questions, you can be saved right now. Are you a sinner? If the answer is yes... Then the next question is, do you want forgiveness for your sin? And if the answer is yes, do you believe, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for you and rose from the dead? And if the answer is yes, are you willing to surrender yourself to Christ? And your heart beats and your palms sweat 
But I want you to remember what Jesus said. Love me now. Confess me now. Don't be ashamed of me. Fortunately, God in his grace and his mercy only gave me three boys and no girls. But can you imagine if your girl, your, your daughter or granddaughter came to you and said, Dad, Mom, there's this boy who loves me. But he said, it has to be a secret. No one else can know. What would you say to her? Dump him! Leave him! He's not someone for you. Don't be ashamed to love your Lord publicly. And that's what I'm going to give you an opportunity to do right now. I'm going to have the worship team come out. I'm going to give you an opportunity to come right here, right now, right in the front of this podium. If you answered the question, yes, to you're a sinner. If you answered the question, yes, do you want forgiveness of sin? If you answered the question, yes, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for you and rose from the dead? If you answered yes, are you willing to surrender yourself to Christ? There's one more question. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready to invite him into your heart and into your life? And I'm going to give you that opportunity to do that now. It's not something you do later. It's something that you do now. Let's stand And I want to invite you to come forward and give your life to Christ. I want to invite you forward. If for whatever reason you found yourself in a place where in rebellion and disobedience you walked away from the Lord. But now in submission and obedience you need to return to the Lord. I'm going to give you that opportunity. Let's sing a song and then we're going to... Again, while we're singing this song, all you have to do, get up, come forward. It's not a trick. I can't make you. You have to do it. Trust me. If I could sneak inside of your heart, if I could see the emptiness, I would want it full, filled with light. If I could see the guilt, I would want forgiveness. If I could see the path that you're headed down, it's away from God and away from heaven, I would poke you. But you have to do it. It has to be your choice. Behold the man upon the